0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Last week we talked about the actual mechanism of imperialism as it occurred in indigenous communities. Now, to be more precise, we talked about one particular aspect of this this overall mechanism used by the institution of imperialism to, first of all, generally impose its will, but uh, more to our particular purposes, to actually actively change the mind of the individuals who were subject to imperial power. The specific aspect that we focused on last time were the so-called Indian boarding schools in the United States of America. As I hope I made clear, these were one mechanism amidst a wide array of them, many amazingly far more brutal than those schools. Now today, we'll talk about the processes, or uh, again, some some partial segment of the overall set of processes used within imperialism. We'll talk about these processes of the colonization of the mind, uh, to use, uh, of course, our stolen phrase there. We'll talk about how that those processes manifest themselves in colonial territories that we would call more quote-unquote settled, meaning imperial territories with towns and cities and institutions of civil society that the occupiers, the imperialists themselves, would recognize as at least being akin to their own. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the English imperial rule over India. Quick summary of where we're going with this episode. Leaning on our conversation in a recent Epiphenomena episode on the philosophy of Michel Foucault, whose form of analysis guides the work that we'll be focused on today and next week, Uh, we're going to be looking at Bernard Cohn's colonialism and its forms of knowledge. Now, following Cohn, who follows Foucault, we'll look at the way the English in India in the 17th and 18th centuries tried to learn and to use, and and finally to refine the languages of India to make their own rule more solid and effective. We'll continue this discussion next week, but we'll begin to see how even when the English intended to respect the traditions the sovereignty, at least the partial sovereignty, and the identity of the people of India. So, for example, when, as we'll talk about today, when the English tried to create a system by which the native Indian languages would be clarified without actually being changed, without fundamentally being altered, well, in, in fact, they ended up changing and altering them quite drastically. Now, as you can imagine, to drastically change a language is to drastically affect many, many aspects of the people who use that language and the civil society within which that language is used. Now, it may sound strange to say that the English had no intention to change the Indian people over whom they were committing, you know, violent imperial rule, and, you know, fair enough, that is a strange thing to say, and of course that's not what we mean. Of course, the English did intend to make countless changes in India, not least by removing Indian political and economic sovereignty. But the point here is that if we follow Cohn's read of the situation, there were many folks in in the English power structure in India who actually wanted to help India, I guess you'd say they wanted to help it remain as Indian as possible, while, of course, not advocating for the removal of English power and the English presence in India. So you would say of these folks who were, again, trying to ensure that India remained, quote-unquote, as Indian as possible, they were also helping, or they regarded themselves also as helping India to progress into what the English would have called a civilized modernity. Now, perhaps it's easy for us to say that this kind of effort was you know, of course doomed to fail from the outset, because how on earth are you going to remove the sovereignty of a country, occupy that country, and then say, well, you know, we don't want uh, to affect any changes. We don't want to tamper with the society in any way. Of course, that sounds somewhat hypocritical. But the specific mechanism of how this attempt to help modernize India without fundamentally changing India, the mechanism of how that attempt failed. And the impact it ultimately had on India is the essence of what we'll be talking about for the next couple episodes. Because if you'll recall, this is exactly the kind of activity that Mill was referencing when he talked about necessary despotism over quote-unquote people in their known age. This is the English doing the quote-unquote right thing, meaning helping a civilization, of course India in this case, helping a civilization to become more mature more rational. Of course, and as we always must say, that's more mature and more rational as the English viewed it, viewing the situation as they did with their kind of built-in rational chauvinism that we've, we've talked about quite a bit. So this essentially is gonna be our learning laboratory in a sense to see how this philosophical notion, how some of these philosophical ideas would be considered, how does that translate into the historical reality of the English in India? Now, to very, very quickly summarize Foucault, and and I will say we just did this epiphenomena episode on him. It. It, it already it was very glib. Uh, it is certainly not a masterclass on Foucault, but it gives you just enough information to you know, perhaps just enough information to be dangerous, but certainly to see some of the reference reference points in this uh, in these couple episodes here. The fundamental focus that Foucault is always going to bring to any questions like this is to analyze the ebb and flow of power as it unfolds historically. So for Cohn, what he's really looking at is, what does it mean for the English to be enforcing this kind of power over India? What explicit impacts did that power have? But then what, what unexpected impacts happened as well? So for example, the fact that Cohn contends that There were changes made to Indian language, for example, as we'll talk about today, that the English truly did not intend, that they were trying very hard to avoid making, but made them nonetheless. That's the kind of unexpected expression of power that just fascinates Foucault. And we see that very much in the echoed in the structure that Cohn uses in his analysis. The first thing to say here is that there's a much more complicated process at work than what we talked about in the last episode. A- and I would also say we'd have to call the process at work here in imperialism in India, on balance, a less, really less brutal than the way imperialists typically treated more indigenous peoples. And this, of course, as we've said, this is another aspect of this rational chauvinism that we keep coming back to. This is the idea that you can put entire peoples, kind of, you can peg them somewhere on a scale of rationality, of maturity, of of essentially of civilization overall. Now to the English and other settled societies, a place like India would have seemed like this kind of exotic and perhaps outdated settled society, while indigenous communities would have appeared, again to use the, the language of the colonizers, indigenous communities would have seemed seemed almost purely barbaric. And if a people seems barbaric, and so goes the sort of unstated implicit logic of imperialism, if a people seems more barbaric, well, maybe that means that we, the colonizers, are justified in being more barbaric in our treatment of them. Now, I don't really think that logic works out terribly well at all, but apparently it was quite popular amongst the imperialists. It's a wonderful little self-fulfilling prophecy by which the imperialists could be both Inhumanely barbaric, and yet use that very behavior as proof of their highly refined rationality and their civilizational attainment. But surely I digress. To look more closely at the dynamics of British colonial rule, we're going to turn primarily to the book I've referenced, but it's a very strange little book. Again, it's Bernard Cohn's Colonialism and Its Form of Knowledge. Now, I'll admit that I find this piece alternately fascinating and frustrating. It starts out making promises that absolutely make me salivate, and then it doesn't quite deliver on those promises, you know, in my humble opinion. So for the rest of our time today, and finishing up next week, we're gonna talk about Cohn, we're gonna talk about his premises, we're gonna talk about the things that I believe he, he really actually delivers on quite well, that he proves quite thoroughly. And I, I will say, I also wanna talk a bit about some of the more sweeping claims that he makes, even when I don't think that he fully follows through on justifying, on proving those claims. Because most of what I've read about the English in India, and perhaps about imperialism more generally, suggests that he's got some really, really good points. There are many areas where he's likely quite right. I just, again, don't feel that he personally tamps down his arguments to the point that I'm willing to present them back to you without at least the occasional you know, implied grain of salt or the occasional asterisk. In any event, let's dive in. So, following Cohn, we begin with the question of language. Upon their arrival in India, the British, who of course, the the British were thinking of themselves as a people with, you know, one common, unified, universally shareable language, of course, English. Now, looking at India, They immediately saw that, first of all, there were many languages at work and all being used by different people and for different purposes. Some languages were used mostly in religious settings, some mostly in legal settings. Some were used in some geographic areas, but not others. Some languages were used, quote unquote, commonly, while others were reserved for specific purposes or people or perhaps more esoteric contexts and situations. So for a moment, Let's consider this from the perspective of the English, not by the way, as a means of building sympathy for their perspective, but rather to understand the steps that they were to take in response to the situation that from their perspective, they were encountering. The English recognized first and foremost, that language was one of the key forms of knowledge that they needed to learn to more broadly learn about the Indian state and the Indian people they recognized generally that knowledge of a people was the key to ruling a people. And they felt, you know, initially, seeing this, this, this network of languages that they couldn't quite wrap their heads around, they felt initially way out of their depths as, as far as they could necessarily uh, reliably communicate with the people over whom they proposed to rule. Now, we'll keep coming back to this question of knowledge. And of course, this sounds pretty obvious, uh, but. Particularly, I think we'll see, particularly when we put our our Michel Foucault uh, hat on, we'll, we'll particularly see in the next episode how this idea of knowledge as it is entwined with rulership, how that evolves in directions that we might not have expected. And again, very much along the lines that Foucault would have both expected and would have very much appreciated. But, first, many English colonists began both to learn and to advocate for a general knowledge of the most common Indian languages. Among the first languages the English sought to learn was Persian, which was one of the languages used in government and law. However, this process was not perhaps so easy as it might have seemed, and certainly wasn't as easy as the English were hoping it would be. Of course, there was no online course that these folks could take, but the challenges actually ran far deeper than that, And in fact, these challenges point us back to a variant of our old friend, worldviews. Now, I'll let Cohn explain this. Quote, the British realized that in 17th century India, Persian would be the crucial language for them to learn. They approached Persian as a kind of functional language, a pragmatic vehicle of communication with Indian officials and rulers through which in a denotative fashion, They could express their requests, queries, and thoughts, and through which they could get things done. To use Persian well required highly specialized forms of knowledge, particularly to draft the many forms of documents that were the basis of official communication throughout much of India. Persian as a language was part of a much larger system of meanings, which was in turn based on cultural premises that were the basis of action the meanings and the premises on which the Indians constructed actions were far different than those of the British. So even behind some somewhat tangly language there, we can see this sort of unexpected challenge emerging for the English here. They were expecting to be able to run language kind of like a piece of software. And again, I'm using this imprecise, misleading kind of analogy of Mind, you know, sort of linking mind to uh, to computations, but but bear with me and don't take it too far. The English, thinking about language, thinking about learning language, they thought of language as being this piece of the mind that you know could basically be augmented or replaced with relatively little fuss or muss. You you basically you learn some new words, you learn a new grammar, and you're all set. They expected learning the language of India to be roughly akin to learning the language of France. French, of course, whose whose main fundamental core linguistic difference from English is that it consistently refers to much, much better food. Otherwise, the two kinds of minds operating beneath and around those respective languages, again, French and English, the, the kinds of minds that are using those two languages are fundamentally basically very similar. But what they found in India, by contrast, was that language in India was rooted in a different history. It was rooted in different traditions. It was rooted in different assumptions. Essentially, language in India was rooted in different forms of mind than it was in England. Now I'm gonna pause here, as I think I've been increasingly using this term worldview differently than I think a lot of people probably do. And I think the difference is actually key to our understanding here and and really key to our understanding in this overall series. Now, typically you hear the term worldview in relation to a relatively well-defined aspect of mind. I might say that uh, to describe my worldview that I was raised in a broadly democratic, Republican kind of worldview, Thus, I have a number of preferences and values and assumptions based on that, most of which I can, I can kind of state. This is the more traditional rendering of the idea of worldviews. You know, someone from ancient Rome may have a more Roman imperial worldview, but also they're going to be able to sort of lay out for you the, the fundamental pieces of that worldview, just like I, from my uh, Democratic-Republican kind of background, can lay out the funda- fundamental aspects of my own. But what I'm suggesting in the way that I use that term is that our worldviews, just like our individual personalities, our worldviews are comprised of countless factors that we never explicitly identify, and that we, we likely couldn't even list if we spent all of our time trying. So my worldview in, in my view, the way I use the term, my worldview is the stance from which I look out at the world, literally so. By definition, I often know a lot less about what constitutes my particular vantage on the world than I do about the things in the external world that I can more closely examine. This is, essentially, this is the same as, as saying that the, the last thing you can actually look at with a telescope is the telescope, right? It's it's because it is the the structure, because it's the vantage point, because it is the instrument that you are using to make these observations, it is impossible to use that, or rather to observe the instrument itself. And, you know, we could also just as as easily use a kind of tip of the iceberg analogy, so what I consciously define and express as my worldview is only a visible minority of factors, whereas the vast majority of my worldview are factors that I can't either really readily identify or express. And as with the iceberg, It's the foundation, the basis of everything we see, the most important defining piece, that's actually always the piece that's unseen. So in that sense, when I think of worldviews, I see the English here in India trying to reconcile themselves to the complexity of a very different language that is, more importantly, rooted in a very different set of tacit assumptions and traditions and associations and meaning and all the rest of it that fundamentally is rooted in a very, very different worldview. This to me is is what I imagine when I talk about significantly different worldviews. It goes far past anything explicit. In the same sense, when we talk about quote unquote changing the mind, it is exactly these kinds of differences, these these differences that are very difficult, difficult to define and to make explicit it's exactly these kinds of differences that I think were often destroyed or altered in the process of changing the world's mind to be more like that of Europeans. So, for example, for every explicit change, for any change that's happening to the piece of the iceberg that we can see, so say the change from traditional uh, indigenous religious practices to Christianity or from communal ownership to individual property for all of those very explicit changes. There are hundreds of changes occurring under the surface that perhaps no one explicitly notices or comments upon, or even would know quite how to comment upon or, 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 or identify in any distinct way, but which nonetheless, these changes nonetheless constitute the bulk of the shape and the character of our mind, just as the, the bulk of any given iceberg is going to be under the water, out of view. So, we see here the English are facing up to this distinct challenge of worldviews. The realization that no feature of the hypercomplex entity that is mind can be easily isolated and manipulated or replaced without affecting all of the other aspects of mind. Language is not always just a system of signification and communication that can, with, you know, a little bit of effort, simply be replaced with another system that works in roughly the same way, but with different outside features, you know, like, you know, as if you're painting a wall with different colors. Language is deeply enmeshed in mind and both influences and is influenced by the countless other factors that constitute the minds of the people using that language. Language is part of the ecosystem of mind. Changing it is not as simple as buying a new plant at the nursery. Now, it wasn't long before the English, to sort of ease their confusion over Indian language, began to try to clarify that language for themselves so that they could become more intimately aware of and in control of the actual mechanisms of power in India which, of course, depended on being able to use this language well. In any event, I'll I'll let Cohn uh, set the stage for us again here. Quote, The years 1770 to 1785 may be looked upon as the formative period during which the British successfully began the program of appropriating Indian languages to serve as a crucial component of their construction of a system of rule more and more British officials were learning the classical languages of India, meaning Sanskrit, Persian, and Arabic, as well as many of the vulgar languages. More importantly, this was the period in which the British were beginning to produce an apparatus, grammars, dictionaries, treatises, class books, and translations about and from the languages of India. The argument of this essay is that the production of these texts and others that follow them began the establishment of discursive formation, defined an epistemological space, created a discourse, meaning Orientalism, and had the effect of converting Indian forms of knowledge into European objects. The subject of these texts were first and foremost the Indian languages themselves, represented in European terms as grammars, dictionaries, and teaching aids in a project to make the acquisition of a working knowledge of the languages available to those British who were to be part of the ruling groups in India. Unquote. So what Cone is saying here is that the English, seeing how important it was to understand these languages, began not so much to translate them as to shift them entirely from the context of Indian knowledge systems, from, as we've been calling it, from an Indian worldview into English knowledge systems and an English worldview. He uses the phrase that the creation of these grammars and guides and all the other sort of textbooks that they were using, that these, quote, had the effect of converting Indian forms of knowledge into European objects. Now think of this distinction as basically akin to saying that the English had found a way to take the living entity of Indian languages out of their sort of natural environment, which of course are the Indian knowledge systems, the Indian worldview, and to submit those languages to sort of a dissection and study in a laboratory. In essence, in the course of this process, the English were trying to carve away or convert all of the aspects of Indian languages that made it confusing to them. All of the aspects of those languages that seemed like chaos or confused reference and and barriers to the English ability to study, learn, and more broadly teach those languages. The only problem was that what the English viewed as sources of confusion were not actually problems to be eliminated, but rather the basic system of meaning and references that these languages depended on to operate the way they had before the English first encountered them. Importantly, at least in the way I read Cone, is the fact that folks most intimately involved in the process on the English side were adamant that they were trying to do this work accurately, to represent as faithfully as possible the real workings of Indian systems of language and meaning. But nonetheless, it proved essentially impossible for them to do so with any real fidelity because, as we discussed before, the system of values, system of assumptions, the system of reference, or, you know, as we're fond of talking about, the overall worldview in which their respective languages were rooted meant that genuine direct translation in the sense of putting together a system wherein, you know, this word in, in an Indian language means exactly this word in English and so on and so on. A kind of direct translation, like exchanging uh, euros for dollars. the It didn't work that way. The act of translating a language rooted in so many cultural differences was akin to trying to replant a tree in a wholly different soil. For the task to work, for, for the tree to take root, the tree itself, had to change in many fundamental ways to sort of adapt to this new soil that it was in. And to hear Cohn tell it, very much against the intentions of the English, this really is exactly what happened. The actual languages used in India to conduct the functions of government, and law, and commerce, and even religion, to the extent that, of course, it depends on the same languages. The way language was used in all of these aspects of civil society was fundamentally altered as a consequence of the English attempt to, quote-unquote, understand it. For physics folks, this is essentially Heisenberg. This is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, the theory that you cannot observe a system without changing it. Except, of course, to the extent that the English were not simply trying to observe. They were trying to change Indian language systems into systems that made more sense to them, into systems that made more sense to the English. Systems that could be readily translated, readily taught as, for example, as we said before, in the way that French and English, certainly they're not interchangeable, it's very hard to go from English and and learn French, but these are, the the entire system of reference that languages depend on, the system of signification that language depends on, all the contextual pieces, very, very largely gonna be pretty similar, right, between English and French. Not so going from English to to the various Indian languages. Naturally, this created what we must at least call a ripple effect, though perhaps it's better to say that uh, instead of creating a ripple, it changed the actual nature of the water altogether. Now, I wanna hear from Cohn one more time as he discusses the means by which a change in language coupled with the English desire to know and to codify all the dynamics of Indian public life, so as to, again, to better be able to exert control within that life. Let's hear Cohn on how all this was fundamentally altered by the way the English manipulated language and knowledge in India, and how that change in language and knowledge seeped out into every aspect of government, every aspect of culture and society. Quote, the knowledge which this small group of British officials sought to control was to be the instrumentality through which they were to issue commands and collect ever-increasing amounts of information. This information was needed to create or locate cheap and effective means to assess and collect taxes and to maintain law and order, and it served as a way to identify and classify groups within Indian society. Elites had to be found within Indian society that could be made to see that they had an interest in maintenance of British rule. Political strategies and tactics had to be created and codified into diplomacy through which the country powers could be converted into allied dependencies. The vast social world that was India had to be classified and categorized and bounded before it could be ordered. As with many discursive formations and their discourses, many of its major effects were unintended, as those who were to be the objects produced by the formation often turned it to their own ends. Nonetheless, the languages that the Indians speak and read were to be transformed. The discursive formation was to participate in the creation and reification of social groups with their varied interests. It was to establish and regularize a discourse of differentiations that came to mark the social and political map of 19th century India. Unquote. So here we have a, a bit of some, some thick verbiage from our friend Cohn, but so let's walk us through this contention. Now the British, as we've said, the British need knowledge of India to control India. They need knowledge of how to control government, how to collect, to collect taxes, how to understand, how to classify and how to control the population. They needed to be able to connect with and relate to local and regional political power structures. In this process, though their intention was to learn Indian languages, as a means of gaining that knowledge and control, the languages themselves were transformed both in the abstract and in their practical function in Indian society. By bringing what they thought of as quote-unquote order to the languages of India, the British changed those languages structurally at the most basic level, with the ultimate effect being that that those languages became an object, or if you prefer, an agent of the British will in India. So a process that began with, you know, if we agree with Cohn, if we follow Cohn in this, and, and I don't know enough clearly about the internal workings of imperialism in India to, to debate him on this point. So I'm sort of just accepting his contention about the English intentions and in all this, but it nonetheless does seem to, to paint a, a pretty consistent picture. But in any event, if we follow Cohn in this, a process that begins with an honest attempt to understand languages as they were, as they existed naturally in India, became a process of transforming language into another tool of control. So, to redescribe all of this in the terms that we've been using all along. The English want to gain knowledge of Indian languages so as to better understand the Indian people and the way they operate in the public sphere. But to achieve that understanding, they had to make changes to the existing languages. The British have to quote-unquote clarify the way those languages are being used so that they can better understand them within their own context. Because of course, the English see themselves as better able to offer clarity, Better able to offer order. Theirs, remember, how many, you know, we we, we talk about this quite a bit. Theirs was the superior rational tradition, at least in their view. In their rational chauvinism, they perceived a means by which they could, quote unquote, educate Indians, bring them along, improve their situation, help them. and, And, you know, I'm stretching this here, but you get my point help make them more mature, help make them more well evolved more modern in their approach to their institutions and their overall operation of civil society. But as ever, helping a people become more mature, quote unquote, in fact meant helping a people become more like the imperialists who were judging those levels of maturity to begin with. Now, even if we agree here with with, with Cohn that the English intentions were good, that they thought they they were helping the Indians become essentially more effectively Indian, that they weren't changing them, they were just kind of helping them evolve in the direction that they were already naturally going, to be more sort of effectively and maturely themselves, and and to do so with greater rationality and clarity as far as the English were concerned. Again, this is all speaking from the English point of view. So to hear Cohn say it's even with the best of intentions and an honest desire to preserve Indian culture and values the English rational chauvinism, at play here, succeeded in remaking Indian language at its core and therefore fundamentally changing the way their society operated. Again, in their ostensible effort to be quote-unquote helpful and supportive, English remade the character of the Indian languages such that it became far more basically rooted in English values and English sensibilities and English notions of order while maintaining the basic outward form of the original Indian languages. So this is, you know, we we talked initially about how there were so many, such a different system of reference and, and, and signification at work underneath the languages in India. Well, rather than just go in and replace the languages, what we see the English doing here is essentially coming in and replacing the subsurface, replacing the soil in which those languages operate such that, yeah, of course, it's going to still sound like the Indian language or using the same grammar or, excuse me, using the same vocabulary, using the same pieces, probably even the same grammar to a large extent, but the system of references that was so much the confusion to begin with from the English point of view, that changes to make the languages conform better to the English notion of what should be clear, what should be rational, what should be a a mature modern working language. This at root is what we've been talking about when we say again and again that the European mind succeeded in reproducing itself in the minds of the people conquered through imperialism. Put differently, this is the colonization of the mind at its finest, And at its most insidious, particularly given, I I do think there's a, a particular stylistic nicety about this. The fact that the English involved, again, if we follow Cohen and I have no reason not to, the English involved in this believed themselves to be genuinely doing a service for the, for the Indian, uh, Indian folks doing a service and helping them clarify these languages, doing a service and helping them improve in a direction they were already going. Of course we see probably not even a possibility in the context they were in, but the fact that those were their intentions and the fact that that's what they thought they were achieving that, you know, it certainly seems very consistent with this entire notion that we, we have starting with mill of sort of necessary despotism and helping the immature peoples uh, achieve greater modernity, greater freedom and greater rationality. But certainly I digress. Now that more or less wraps up our conversation for today. Uh, Next time, we'll continue our discussion on Cohn's read on imperialism in India to look at how the same process applied to Indian law. Then we'll go a bit further to examine what I think of some some of Cohn's claims that, though they really do resonate with me, though I think there's a a lot of important pieces in them, I don't think they are proven quite to the extent that I'd like within the context of the essay, as, as I was talking about before. And I guess if I had a specific question for folks, if, if you wanted to send me some feedback on this, as I'm starting now to get into the details of of what I mean when we talk about this broad category of activities that I've been referring to as sort of the changing the world's mind, if you will. We've talked about in the that in the abstract for so long. Well, now we're getting into the details. We certainly got into the details. Uh, last week, or a couple weeks ago, talking about the Indian boarding schools in America. We're looking at this in terms of Indian language and the English imperial experience in, in India. Now, these are just examples. They're certainly not exclusive examples. There are a lot of different pieces to this. But as we kind of go from the theory to more of the quote-unquote practice uh, of the idea of changing minds in imperialism, is this what folks... Expected, is this consistent with what you were anticipating as we were talking about this more theoretically, does this still seem to, to fit together? I suppose I should say, if it, if it ever seemed to fit together for you, does it continue to, or is this pulling you in different directions? Is this making you get a, a different impression of these activities than you were expecting? In any event, as always, would love to hear your responses to, uh, whatever it would please you to respond to. So. Uh, please send me an email, words at a freedom of ideas, or drop me a line on Twitter at a freedom of ideas, or check out the website, a freedom of You can also, in addition to all that contacting and question answering stuff on the website, you can also, uh, you know, find information on how to support the show, find information on how to get some merchandise. If that's what you're into, you can certainly find some great uh, snippets and clips and descriptions that you can send to your friends to recommend to the, the, the show to them. So all kinds of great stuff, just a, a cornucopia of things that uh, are really exciting that that actually serve my interest, but that I want you to feel excited about as well. In any event, thank you as always for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time as we continue looking at Cohn and his work, and I'm looking forward to it.